Hello, and welcome to Shared Space, a podcast about the power of architecture and design to make us healthier, happier, and more connected. I'm your host, Erin Peavy, and I'm so glad that you're here with us. Today, I'm talking with Patricia Gruitz, a senior principal and managing director at Mass Design Group. Her work has been featured in journals of architecture and design, as well as the BBC World News and the Discovery Channel. And I am super excited to have her here with us today. Thank you, Patricia. Thank you so much for having me. Honored to be here. You know, when I saw you guys' amazing work on the important topic of social interaction for older adults during the pandemic, I was like, yes, I've been looking for this. Um, (laughs) So I just jumped on the chance to have you to be able to share this work with our listeners. So I'm super pumped. Before we get into the meat of everything, say a few words about your background, who you are, and the work that you do at Mass. Sure. Um, So my background, um, you know, I was born and raised um, just outside of Detroit, Michigan. I went to the University of Michigan. Um, Was always interested in in social justice issues. Um, You know, I was really engaged um, at a young age. My grandparents actually um, started a nonprofit, a medical center in Haiti. And so had like a really, yeah, back in like the the 60s and 70s. So kind of always had that as like a um, North star, I think for my own, um, just like goal, um, as I was pursuing my own education and own career and was fortunate enough while I was at school to really be inspired by architecture. Um, I wasn't quite sure that that's what I wanted to do, but was just inspired by the field and ended up in an architecture studio. Um, and just knew that that's like what I wanted to, how I wanted to express and find this intersection between, design and social social justice issues. And I um, was fortunate at Michigan because it's such a large program to just be exposed to a lot of different faculty and a lot of different ideas um, and was really nurtured to kind of pave my own path. I mean, I was in school in the early 2000s when, um, you know, design for impact really wasn't a term or, so, you know, social design. Um, obviously, with, I mean, you know, there have been movements you know, throughout history where, where architects have kind of come in and, you know, made um, made a point of sort of refocusing the profession on, on humans who would have thought. Um, but uh, <laughs> um, so it was something that, you know, was really nurtured at Michigan. And I was lucky enough to come into the work and studio of uh, Sheila Kennedy, who had a firm out here in Boston called um, Kennedy and Village Architecture. And together we created this project was called Portable Light, and it was Portable a Light? Portable Light, mm-hmm. Portable Light Project, nice. and it was a um, sustainable source of like power and light. So this like flex, and it was embedded into textiles, which was my kind of passion and background in fiber arts. I studied it through college. I was really just interested in how how that could lead to to space. And so with Sheila um, kind of leading the project, we we took these solar lanterns and this kind of idea of integration into native and local construction Mm -hmm. or fabric constructions and went to Mexico to work with the indigenous group there. And then went to Brazil to work with another sort of uh, indigenous community outside of the, outside of center in Brazil and in the Amazon. And so 
kind of had this exposure right out of school at this like wonderful intersection about how design could be applied in the real world. Um, and at the same time, you know, I was still working at KVA where it was, you know, kind of really nurtured into um, like the actual practice of architecture. And so came to Mass, um, you know, seven years ago, really interested in how I could learn from others and apply the, this thinking outside of just this one project, yeah. the Portable Light Project. And, you know, Mass was doing that kind of work. They were thinking about co-creation. They were thinking about mm-hmm. the design process mm-hmm. and how we how we changed the way that we build. Yes. And so it was a really exciting moment. Um, Mass was growing. Um, we were starting to get outside of um, outside of Rwanda, where we were founded 10 years ago. And of course, we were founded, you know, in a response to an epidemic disease, which now um, and has always felt very has always felt very relevant, but um, to our work. But now, just given the COVID nineteen pandemic, you know, is is incredibly relevant. And you know, in the first hospitals that we designed, you know, we were designing for like you know drug resistant tuberculosis. Um, when we were working in Haiti, um, we were working with like cholera epidemic in Liberia, like in the wake of Ebola. And so, you know, well, we definitely had some unique experiences that made um, our presence now in the US, now that we've sort of transitioned to have a really strong office, not just an office in Kigali, Rwanda, but to have an office here in Boston and in the United States working in Santa Fe and in New York. Um, just found that we had some research and some lessons learned that we could offer people. Yeah. And so, um, so, you know, at mass I've done, as you mentioned, like a lot of different things, everything from, uh, maternity waiting homes to a series of schools, um, abroad, also working on larger universities in Rwanda, spent some time living there with my family and moved back to Boston in 2018, um, to have my son and really started to focus on how I could take what I had learned, um, personally sort of through our projects abroad and how I could bring that here to the U.S. and really focusing on Boston, which is which is my home now. And so have been spending the last two years working on a lot of affordable housing projects um, and really looking at this intersection of health and housing yeah. and trying to think about how we can also create tools, um, resources, and guidelines that, that others can learn from. So oh, that's awesome. That is, that is very cool. Um, so, you know, one of the kind of questions that I had was just around how you specifically decided to take on senior housing during this pandemic. Uh, you know, I think that you started to kind of hint at maybe some parallels, but what what made you tackle this topic? So for the last few years, I've been working in Boston, and one of the sort of topics um, of one of our projects is specifically senior affordable housing um, or age-restricted affordable housing. And it's already a very challenging typology to design and build for, um, you know, there's a lot of things that are just intention, yeah. <laughs> whether, you know, understanding, yes. you know, an individual's need for like control and agency, um, and autonomy, um, you know, designing in between spaces that want to be really flexible, but then also needing the specificity of like senior needs and seniors to be able to age, mm-hmm. you know, from really 65 to, you know, in their nineties, like the different needs that, that those age groups and that someone, yeah along that continuum will need and experience. Um, and also just this general tension between, you know, how we think about institutions versus homes. And so when COVID hit, you know, we were really, um, really fortunate to already be in conversation with some really incredible partners who were thinking about new ways to think about housing for seniors. Mm-hmm. 
and were in these conversations as they were thinking about how they could adapt their space some of the lessons that they were um, that they were already learning yeah. some of the questions that they had and as designers you know we had one point of view and as developers and housing operators they had other insights and other points of view and so we just started to bring people together yeah kind of just to learn and you know we have a network um, internally at mass that allows us to kind of tap into these different disciplines, mm-hmm. um, you know, to have developers, architects, housing operators, funders, all at the table asking <sighs> these same questions. I'm like, that's what, that's, I'm sorry, everything that you just mentioned, no, I feel like is this like perfect, <laughs> you need all of those aspects because without that, you're sort of trying to move this lever where the other lovers are like, nah, I'm good. Um, so oh, that's great. No, it's, it's, it was, um, it's my favorite it, it talks to like the methodology, I think a lot at mass, mm-hmm. which is that we aren't, we don't, we are not necessarily experts, but we are able to sort of speak to and bring together experts and people with different perspectives to build consensus around ideas. Mm-hmm. And, and so really it was just rooted out of these conversations that we felt we were really fortunate to be having and felt yeah. like there was a lot of need for more people to be talking about yes. um, housing and specifically for seniors. And, Again, like, you know, the unique issue about seniors, I mean, there's so many, they're, they're not only at like higher risk, like we know that, yeah. but, but the solution, the sort of, <laughs> you know, the solution or the sort of uh, anecdote to infection control was like, well, just distance yourself from <laughs> others, you know, social isolation. And that's like a huge threat to our senior population. Yes. You know, research has said that it's just as, you know, just as bad for you as, as smoking. It's, and, and that I think is... Yes something that we just felt was something we could react with, um, in fear. We knew, you know, there's a way that you can design for fear yeah. yes. design for illness. Oh God. Well and, said. and we felt like we needed to actually be designing for, for joy and designing for hope and designing for community and interaction. Mm. And so these conversations, you know, yes, some of them were very serious. Some of them were full of sort of the what if and the fearful kind of question of, um, what if we have an outbreak? What happens? Um, right. What do we do? But also, what could we? How could we bring life back into these spaces? Yes. How could we start to reconnect people? Um, and could we actually come up with some solutions that allow people? Um, not for you know, we're never going to get to infection elimination. Yeah. But true infection control that allows for for us to live our lives. Yeah. And. And so that's that's really its its genesis. Um, you know, again, like you know, in terms of again bringing people together, we're really fortunate to have wonderful partners and reviewers on the project. From you know, Jen Malinsky at the Joint Center for Housing Studies at Harvard, she graciously gave us her time and her insights and support, and contributed to the research in the guide. Mm-hmm. Um, Emmy Kyoto, who is this amazing um, architect and researcher who has really spent a lot of time specifically understanding the needs of, of, of older adults mm-hmm. and especially extremely, extremely frail older adults. Yeah. Um, and so she was another collaborator on, on this guide and yeah, we're able to kind of pull people together um, and hopefully put something out there that others find useful. Yeah. Like we were talking about earlier when, when all of this hit, we, you know, I was going to talk about, loneliness and the built environment and, you know, looking at the, you know, sort of the isolation, the forced isolation that we all, you know, had to go through for our own safety. 
just really, to me, begged all of these questions around, well, how else could we live that, I mean, I just think the way that you said it, uh, you know, designing for joy and hope and connection rather than fear. And it's not meaning to ignore those components, but find where are the synergies in those components. Um, and I think that you guys did a really beautiful job of doing that. Um, I I especially liked um, this this one quote that you guys had, which is, where other guides focus on how to keep people distanced from one another, this guide is aimed at achieving infection control principles while offering solutions that allow people to safely come together. I was like, yes, yes, like all caps, <laughs> highlights. Yes, this like this is what we need. Um, and I think that that you know, in and we're gonna like dive into the principles that you guys came up with. Um, but I think in that, that, I think there are a lot of synergies across across multiple different types of, of housing and beyond. Um, okay. I did just want to mention some of, some of the just stats that really stuck out to me from your report, um, just for anyone that's less familiar about some of the, the, you know, senior housing, um, and, um, COVID, COVID statistics in general, which, um, I knew a little bit about, but still, um, still was struck by. And of course, you know, this was published in June. So, so this was, you know, data that has, of course, changed since then. But I was looking at about 80% of the deaths were people that were 65 and above. And even though only 3% of seniors were living in nursing homes, assisted living, that type of sort of group setting, almost 45% of the deaths of seniors were coming from those areas. Is that correct? Am I reading that right? Yes. That's nuts. <laughs> That's nuts. Um yeah. yeah, it's a it's a staggering statistic. And it, it took us a while to kind of unpack that. I mean, also trying to un unpack where all the different places where seniors live. Yeah, was all, and, and the way that different risk profiles yes. were generated yeah. for those seniors based on not just where they live, um, you know, not just their zip code and like the type of housing they have, yeah. but also the type of care that they've set up for themselves, yeah. whether it's like a family member providing some amount of care, whether it's like a vendor or like a caregiving service mm -hmm. or whether it's actually provided in home. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's this unbelievably like amazing web um, of just trying to understand, you know, where seniors are and how space relates to their risk of infection. Right. So, so about that specifically, I mean, I think that was one of the things that, you know, I, it was such a takeaway from, from you guys report, which was just that, looking at that stat, you can't help but go, all right, so where we live and our, are the environments that we live and how, you know, how we receive care is going to influence, you know, our, our chances of, of getting COVID, surviving COVID. Um, and so, you know, I just thought that that was, that was really important um, to, to sort of say, okay, and how can we be, be safe and still happy because the truth is like, you know, you had talked a little bit about um, just the, the negative health impacts of, of loneliness and social isolation. I have been seeing and hearing from my colleagues that work, you know, as clinicians in senior housing, just, just hearing about, you know, the, the day-to-day -day routines that people had that involved, you know, connecting with their love, like their wife, for instance, that was on a different mm -hmm. unit 
and their inability to get to see each other anymore. And what that does and and sort of watching their cognitive decline, watching their weight yeah. loss because they just don't want to eat anymore because they're not eating in community. Um, so I just, I feel like that can't be overstated. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I agree. I mean, what it, what I think, you know, this pandemic has done across the board is kind of reveal all of the cracks and further exacerbate the cracks that already exist, um, in, in the systems around us. And yeah, senior living is one of the systems that I think for a long time advocates have been, you know, out there talking (laughs) about how it needs to be improved and, and how, um, at risk our seniors are. And I think this is just showing really, um, one of the kind of demographics that are disproportionately affected because of the sort of structural ju- structural um, system that's been constructed around them. Yeah, yeah. And so when you think about like the institutionalization of like our seniors, yes, um, yeah, really, um, really intense. It's actually this is kind of a funny thing that came to my mind, but um, so I mentioned we had been working on this senior housing project. And so when I went to Rwanda to visit one of my projects over there, I went out to dinner with a few of our colleagues who are Rwandan and, you know, was talking to them about this new project and how exciting it was and how cool um, it was to be working with this partner on it. And, and he stopped me and he said, I don't understand in the U.S. Why don't you take care of your elderly? Like, why aren't you taking care of your grandparents? (laughs) And I was like, what do you, what do you mean? You know, like, and, but it, it was like, but it, yeah. it keeps coming back on me. I was like, he saw through all of this that was like, wait, why do you have to have specific housing for your senior population? Like, why don't, why don't, don't you live, why don't you take care, why don't you take care of your elders? And it's like, <laughs> that's something we all, I think, need to be thinking about and questioning. Like, how can we better take care of our seniors? How can we better take care of our elders? Well, and I, so, you know, tangents are us, but like, one of the things that I think is really interesting and that sort of goes to some of what we were talking about before our call, which is just with all the parents working from home and trying to juggle everything, you know, how wonderful is it to be able to have, you know, your, your parents that are 65 and above mostly, um, to Mm -hmm. be able to help care for your kids or, 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 you know, people, those elderly people as well. And so, Sort of, I remember at the beginning of this thinking, man, if this is not a call for wanting sort of everyone under one roof in some way to be able to juggle and manage this and have joy in it while not spreading infection, like, um, yeah, I don't know. Like, what are your thoughts around that? You know, it's interesting. We've thought about the, I mean, the multi-generational kind of housing model is one that like we don't see a lot of, especially in like affordable housing. Um, Like we don't typically design for you to design for like a one bedroom or a two bedroom apartment. Um, And I would love to see more of, because I think there are a lot of communities, especially um, in our like immigrant communities and communities of color. Like you do see a higher proportion of kind of multi-generational living. Yeah. I do think as we, about infection control, it's been something that's come up with our team about yeah. how do you then protect your elders from, from infection yep. when they're in multi-generational family living situations and may not have their own bathroom or their own entry yeah. or have access to be able to kind of self-isolate if they need to or yeah. are at mm-hmm. high risk or if they're living with, you know, you know, a, 
a young child who is going back to daycare or is being exposed now to school programs yeah. that that they're bringing that home. Yeah, and so I don't totally. know. I don't know. What the <laughs> I think I think I was more thinking of like. <laughs> Uh, little house on the prairie style <laughs> we all just stay here and hunker down um yeah. but yeah but then when you start to think about like okay mixing you know some of the models that mix for instance college students and seniors and you're like yeah maybe not right now <laughs> <laughs> so could you just walk us through some of those principles like what does it look like to design safe space for interaction during all of this Sure, sure. I mean, um, I won't go through all of them, yeah. but I think some of the some of the highlights. I mean, one thing I will say is like as we're talking about different housing types, whether it's like multifamily or whether it's like a one bedroom home or whether it's in like, um, you know, a, a single family home. Uh, we tried to think about all those different types of housing possibilities and felt like it wasn't one size fits all. There's no way to come up with investment control guidelines for one, for all of those different types. There's yeah. also, you know, um, just even within those types, just per, personal like risk yeah. um, limits. Right. Yeah. And so what we did is we tried to define generically, um, you know, the spaces of like the public spaces that exist where things might be, kind of at a higher risk because yeah. they are literally in the public domain. Um, we then tried to identify what might be considered like semi-public, maybe some like shared spaces that are still outside and open to the public, but maybe within the, you know, kind of bounds of like ownership by the resident. Mm -hmm. um, the semi-private might be things that are kind of shared, whether it's like a corridor that gets you to your apartment or whether it's like a porch that's maybe shared with some of your um, some of your neighbors and then you have like the private areas where you can actually kind of have zones where you have like the greatest amount of infection control and typically where your risks are lowest mm -hmm. but we recognize that like even in that distinction between like public semi-public semi-private and private there's kind of like a slider bar yeah. <laughs> for each individual where like what those spaces are would totally change so if I'm living in you know a uh, multi-generational housing and I'm an older adult living with my, you know, daughter and her four-year-old, my, you know, kind of private area actually might be my bedroom. Mm -hmm. I may not even have it at like the door to our, you know, apartment yeah. or the door to our home. Yeah, yeah. Whereas like someone else who's living in maybe a more, a smaller type of um, multifamily development might say, actually, like, I feel pretty good about like my eight neighbors and we all use the same spaces and we're basically like a pod. So like mm -hmm. my threshold of like, private space actually extends into my lawn, you know, like there might be different mm, ways that mm. we see that kind of toggling back and forth. And that's really that's what we focused on was trying to help people understand those thresholds yeah. and where for them, there would be this exchange between what we in healthcare call dirty spaces yeah. and clean spaces. Yeah. So dirty spaces kind of meaning where, um, where typically as like a doctor coming into, um, into a patient room, you kind of know, okay, this, this is now a contaminated or a potential risk of infection by coming into the patient room. Mm -hmm. Um, and a clean space is where I'm like taking off all of the PPE I had on in that experience. And I'm like re-entering into what we see as like a lower risk zone. And so yeah. we tried to apply that same kind of thinking to, to the, uh, affordable housing space. Nice. And so, um, so some of the, yeah, so some of the principles though, so once we kind of said, okay, like, we're not going to try to like say that this guide is one size fits all. <laughs> We're going to try to come up with some like diagnostics here yeah. and give you some food for thought. Yep. And then, you know, let's look at it um, in terms of like just 
best practices. And I think first and foremost, you know, making just spaces breathe better. Yes. Right. Yes. We're, you know, we're, we're starting to all agree that COVID-19 can be transmitted through airborne particles, you know, um, opposed to what we sort of thought early on. And so, you know, making sure that there's appropriate and proper quantities of fresh air delivered to residents that we're evaluating our HVAC systems and that we're creating these well-ventilated spaces um, throughout the building. Um, you know, operable openings, I think can supplement air dilution, Mm -hmm. but, you know, also, you know, other types of mechanisms to actually ensure that the air is flowing the right way, especially as we think about like multifamily housing. Mm -hmm. Um, and we think about, you know, oftentimes the way that we bring fresh air in is by like assuming that there's some like leaks underneath the door and there's some some ways that we might share ducts and have some efficiency. And so, you know, evaluating the systems actually fully understand where they are, I think is a, is a first, is a first step. And then looking for ways to bring in adequate quantities of fresh air and having the appropriate air exchanges is like fundamentally across the board. (laughs) Okay. Can I ask you a question? I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, which has just been Mm -hmm. like rolling around in my head around this specific topic that you just brought up, which is like, okay, we need Essentially, it would be ideal if we somehow had 100% outside air um, and that we understand that that means either through our systems that, you know, they are going to be running, you know, well over capacity. We need to like triple, quadruple the size of, of all of our HVACs or we need to, you know, open up our windows or whatever. But my question is like, in order to um, thinking about synergies between sustainability and what we're talking about right now, mm-hmm. right? I yeah. I feel like there are spaces where yes, of course, you need to filter all of that, and it needs to be the right temperature. But like, when are we as humans going to just go like, okay, and now we have to adjust to being either less comfortable? or mm-hmm. like dressing differently or, you know, I don't know. Do you, do you have any thoughts around that topic? Well, I think it's, it's funny because actually like we um, at mass, our office in Boston, like right before the pandemic hit yeah. um, had this kind of like funny smell in the office that we couldn't quite figure out what it was. <laughs> and so our solution was just to like open up all of the windows. Cool. And so for like the weeks as the pandemic was like coming on and as we were all like working and everyone started to talk about, you know, shutting down their offices. Yeah. We were all like in March in Boston, just putting on a sweater and working at the office with the windows open because <laughs> it smelled, but also like recognizing that like <laughs> we were getting incredible airflow and probably like, you know, could have been helping ourselves um, yeah. throughout the entire spring, um, you know, by having just like more adequate open air. But that's not really what you're talking about. But I do think, I mean, I think that's what we're going to hopefully see more of is just more people especially in like our institutions, um, like schools and hospitals where like we pretty much like seal them off yes. right, and rely almost entirely yes. on HVAC systems, um, that there would be more operability or opportunities for bringing in fresh air. I mean, yeah. also what's interesting about um, like systems like not to promote like passive house specifically, but you know, it's a, um, I don't know if you know the passive house. I do, but uh, say a few words about, but- about it for anyone that doesn't. Well, it's essentially like a, I mean, it is a kind of sustainability criteria system, right? Which Mm -hmm. really prioritizes really sealing the building in some ways through insulation, but it actually brings in incredibly high amounts of fresh air. Mm -hmm. 
And so it is something that we're looking at on a number of our projects. And, you know, it's not a, it's not passive. It's not like a passive ventilation system. It's actually quite the opposite, but it does require a large amount of fresh air, which could be a model to look at as we think about, you know, how to build for the future. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think, um, I think across the board, I also, uh, that, that some of those strategies that you're talking about, it's like, where is the synergy between how we want to live as human beings, like mm-hmm. what, and, and what our earth can take and, you know, keeping, keeping safe. And I do, I do think that there are these wonderful synergies, but that they're not always easy. Like, you know, I, um, you know what I mean? I don't know. It's not always like the default into ease. Or maybe not the most comfortable. Yeah. Right. Like I think it's, it's the, it's the, how much are you willing to be like uncomfortable? Yes. And I, sorry, that's, I think that's what I meant by easy. It's like, yeah. it's like it takes us going like, I am going to change my definition of comfort to have a wider range. And I'm going to accept greater variability in like, you know, either what people look like on screen or how I, how I dress or whatever, whatever. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I think that we've gotten used to a very small window of comfort. Um, you know, I would love to see this be a time where we start to expand that out because it is safer from an infectious, you know. Yeah. But it's also, here's the thing, it's also safer in a lot of ways that we do not understand because a lot of times our, our indoor environments are filled with toxins, um, you know, from whatever yeah. is off gassing. You know, I always joke with people that are like, I just love that new car smell. I'm like, just so you know, it's literally like toxins <laughs> released into the air. <laughs> Run. Yeah, yeah, no, that's great. So, okay. So you had talked a little bit about thresholds. Can you, can you help sort of death define what you mean when you say thresholds and why they're so important? Yeah. So, I mean, I think that, I mean, thresholds are really these moments where the environment shifts. I mean, people talk about thresholds in many different conditions, right? But I mean, a threshold can be literally a threshold that you walk through and it can be denoted in that way very clearly. It can be a door, it can be an entry, it can be a portico. Like it can, it can be something that you know that you're passing through. But oftentimes in infection control, the thresholds between spaces that are clean and spaces that are dirty aren't always clear. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, one of the points in the guide that we point to a lot as well is, is about, you know, spatial literacy. And about really keying people in to understanding through wayfinding, mm-hmm. through design, through mm-hmm. visual cues, um, that their space is yeah. somehow changing and that their potential risk is also somehow cha- changing and to, to take additional precautions or additional, whether that's additional cleaning, whether that's um, avoiding a space, whether that's just, you know, putting yeah. your mask back on um, or taking cueing it off. Behavior. You know, those are, I think, yeah. cueing behavior. Exactly. Yeah. Some of that can even be just like, you know, yeah. sequencing, sequencing flows, sequencing the way people kind of go through like the ritual of, of their mm-hmm. day in some ways. Um, and, you know, letting people know like where to go so that you just really are limiting like that unnecessary yeah. mixing. So, um, you know, that's, I think, how we can create more intentional interaction, interaction when people want to be interacted with, when they're yes, prepared to be interacted like- with. Um, as much, Yeah, it's. As much as it is just, you know, letting right? people know Again, where to go, with right? the synergy between 
the social dynamics where there are those layering of like, when do you want to be alone versus choosing to be together? And at the same Mm -hmm. time, those layering of, of COVID risk. And I, I feel like, again, there's, there's those synergies and that the concept of thresholds is important for both because, you know, you can go into a threshold and say, all right, and now like, now I'm in my office, which may be out in public, but there's somehow like some sort of definition of that space versus, you know, moving through. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's, it's interesting because I think that one of the things that stood out to me that, you know, is in this, in creating mm-hmm. this guide was actually that a lot of the fundamentals of infection control do align with when you actually start creating and designing meaningful yes. spaces. Say more. And and they aren't they aren't they aren't necessarily at odds in the way that you think they would be. Um, and part of that, you know, um, comes from, you know, we had done some initial research when we were designing this project called the Maternity Waiting Village in Malawi, which was essentially like a, a dormitory for expectant mothers to come and wait in close proximity to a hospital, right? But they had like the program or like the design of it was supposed to accommodate thirty some people, yeah. thirty some women. Um, and we immediately recognized that like just a you know, the design that they had was essentially mm-hmm. this like barracks. It was like 30 people, one room, mm-hmm. basically like a ward. And it didn't make any sense as to, you know, kind of the yeah. social structures and also just how you actually could build meaningful relationships yeah. while these women are waiting. Some of them were waiting there like yeah. six weeks, right? So, you know, there could be an amazing relationship and programmatic opportunity. And so we started doing research into social networks and understanding the scale at which yes. social interaction most meaningfully happens and also doing some locally contextually appropriate kind of conversations to understand, you know, how that applied in Malawi and in this rural context in Malawi. And so we went from creating like bedroom, a bedroom for like 36 women to one bedroom (laughs) for 36 to creating um, bedrooms of, you know, four people. Um, And, you know, the the way it was described to us is that four made sense Mm -hmm. because, you know, two is Mm -hmm. too few. If, you know, you went into labor and your roommate wasn't there, then like you wouldn't have the support of others. Um, if it was three, you could have some like dynamics that mm. weren't quite equal mm. potentially. <laughs> and then four allowed you to have multiple different configurations of people. Um, mm. And and so that was kind of the smallest number we could get to. And when we thought about senior housing, we started designing um, for senior housing as well. It was housing for, yes. for community, right? For yes. living in community. And when you think about some of these multifamily mm-hmm. housing developments that are upwards mm-hmm. of 100 units, 100 and 50 units, 200 units. And you think, how do we actually create community at that scale? Um, I think like the, like Dunbar as this researcher, they came up with this number, right. That like 150 people is like the most names or people that you can hopefully have a relationship with. Right. So, so, um, so we started looking at, you know, ways you could break down the scale and how you could have units kind of, um, centralized into sort of smaller clusters through the design and smaller neighborhoods. And that's part of the point, one of the points in our guide as well as like grouping the residents into what we call villages, right? So small clusters that kind of form this happy medium between complete isolation and complete exposure. I think a lot of people are calling them pods now, right? (laughs) Like this idea of like pods and education, right? Where you like pair up as families. Well, trying to actually manifest that in, in the design of our spaces um, I think it's going to, is allowing people to like come together, but it's also the scale, you know, and it meets like our infection yes, control parameters, like right? Like thing. no more than 10 people right? like our natural, but it's also like the kind of, people yes, exactly. Like it's, <laughs> it's fascinating how closely our 
um, our natural social dynamics for wanting to be 12 or less to to that actually being so similar to, okay, and that's your ideal, like you don't want to spread outside of that. Um, and, you know, I, it's so interesting to me. So I, I actually had, you know, I'd wanted to talk with you about villages because Julian Holt Lundstedt and I had a conversation like months ago where, we, you know, we were just talking, this was like when COVID had first hit and we were sort of starting to talk about sort of what this means and all, all of the ins and outs and talking about some of the places in Italy and other places that are still secure and are still okay. And it's that, that much more closed village mentality. And I think you guys mentioned the greenhouses. Do you want to, do you want to talk about that? It's a very different type of greenhouse than we're used to hearing about. (laughs) Sure. I mean, it's, um, it's a, it's a great model, the greenhouse project, which is specifically for assisted living, which is, is not what our guide is about, but there are some lessons there that I think, you know, for years now, advocates have been sort of saying, how can we better design, you know, assisted living models or nursing care settings to not be mm-hmm. so institutional? Um, and it's it's essentially a village of, you know, um, yeah. residents who really just have like their own bedroom and bathroom, but with a shared living room and a shared kind of yeah. common kitchen where their food is served at a smaller scale of, I think, somewhere between eight and ten kind of residents coming together and typically they have access to like a front porch mm-hmm. or an outdoors. And it's also what's interesting as it relates to COVID is also like how the yes. staff model yes. works with that. And, and it's really interesting. And I, I love looking at it um, as a model also for, for how we might think about new forms or new yes, models please. of housing. Say more. Just in, just in, it's kind of like the, if you've heard of like yeah. the co-housing totally. kind of trend, I mean, I know it's popular in San Francisco. There's some here in New York and Boston um, we're basically, you know, you have kind of common shared programs that yeah. bring people together, like, you know, a shared larger kitchen yeah. and dining room and maybe a lounge or like kind of a living room space. And you really only have ownership of your bedroom and like a smaller space. And so as we think about kind of pods or small village living, I think there's some really interesting precedents yeah. out there. There's, there's some research coming out, or maybe you know more than I do about, um, some research coming out about sort of analysis of how well the greenhouse project has weathered um covid i so i've been dying to hear some of it i mean i i remember following when the greenhouse project sort of first started and thinking oh wow this like you know this is such a good model and then when all of this happened thinking oh my god i i'd love no i have i need to i'm gonna see if i can find that and put it in the show notes if i can because that'd be super cool i'll send you i I briefly read an article not enough to talk about it but um, I'll send it yeah, to you as well. That'd be awesome. It. But it definitely was a point of inspiration for at least a step towards yeah. that. You know, obviously in senior affordable housing, it's independent yeah. housing. We don't have the staff, the reliance on staff. Um, there's also certain, what's interesting is like the funding streams in affordable housing that mandate sort yes. of what's included and what's in basis and what's outside of it. And so that additional level of like, um, I think, uh, inability to innovate yeah. or modify is really challenged by um, by our funding, and I think I would. I mean, I hope, and I you know, I hope that part of what this guy is advocating for is that you know some of these elements that in the kind of QAP or the, the kind of yeah, know, what's funding, QAP uh, kind of requirements? Uh, it's the okay. the allocation plan. So it's it's basically the just. Well, you don't, the, that doesn't probably help anyone understand. <laughs> At least now is, there's but, better Googling. Um, Go on. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, the, it basically sets out all of the, the design yeah. guidelines and requirements for affordable housing in order for you to access the, the government like, funding. So it, it mandates yeah. how big it can be. It can mandate like, you know, whether you have a dishwasher or not, it can mandate whether or not you're allowed to put right. a balcony, right. Which like balconies are seen as luxury, luxury items, items yeah. which I think, um, you know, I think of like my own experience living in the city, you know, in yeah. multifamily housing during this pandemic and, you know, how precious a fire escape was and how precious a community mm-hmm. garden was, right. That we could actually have access to that, you know, 10, you know, <laughs> whatever, 80 square feet of, of, <laughs> of a landscape, right. It was amazing, but yeah. it was, um, and so, you know, balcony, especially as you mentioned, Europe and some of these smaller villages, like where those were moments of so- social interaction for people. Yeah. And shared, um, shared outdoor space I think and share, you know, like, yeah. Yeah. And how we could use this as a moment to sort of advocate for maybe a re-examination of, of what is a cent- what is seen I, as essential and what is seen as luxury. Oh, I love that. Yes. Use it as a moment to re-examine what we see as essential versus what we see as luxury, I think. That's, that's a, that's a takeaway quote for me. Um, that's really good. Okay. So, um, you know, one of my top questions would be, is there anything that you wish more people knew around designing environments for social health, social connection, um, and, and, or sort of just ways that you think that you wish more people were considering in design? Interesting. I mean, I think one of the one of the things that I'm interested mm-hmm. in is you touched about it a little bit earlier. Um, kind of like how we don't fully understand the impact that going through this pandemic is going to have on our senior population, or really on <laughs> any population. And there's kind of this nascent field emerging um, in design around like trauma-informed yeah. design, which is really you know, in terms of trauma-informed design, it's a care model, but now we're starting to think about how that applies to the design profession. And, you know, it's, it's, I'll, I'll share this because I think that, um, you know, when I previously mentioned to someone something about trauma-informed design, they were like, well, what do, yeah. what do you mean by trauma? Yeah, yeah, it's fine. <laughs> like, very good question, right? Um, and so I think, like, you know, as, as it's, you know, there's a general statistic that something like 60% or two-thirds of us as adults have experienced some kind of adverse childhood experience, which is some yeah. form of trauma, whether that was like abuse or neglect or whether that was divorce or even just yeah. economic hardship. And so when you think about like this broad or even just like yeah. mental health or substance abuse problems, right? So when you think about this broad sort of experience that we're yeah. having right now oh as God. people are going through undue like economic hardship or shifts in their family structure or Schooling shifts in yeah. who they yeah. schooling, right? Like Breaks and, um, and so it's it's really going to become this like universal experience. And I think it really needs, you know, the design then I think needs to shift and actually acknowledge not just our physical health, but also our mental health and spaces for wellness and acknowledge, you know, spaces that can be triggering um, and spaces that can be healing. Physical and and mental. I mean, I'm just saying physical and mental kind of, kind of win the same thing. I, I feel like we always separate them, but you know, yeah. I mean, you probably know the research as well as I do, but the thing about that child trauma that you just mentioned is that it shows up in our genes and it shows up in our kids' genes. I mean, it is just, 
it's crazy. It is crazy to see you're born with one set, but a lot of these have sort of ways of either turning off or on certain expressions of those genes. And that trauma may bring out things that uh, we otherwise wish that it wouldn't. Um, and, and childhood trauma is a predictor of later health outcomes like cancer. I mean, straight up, just, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. basic health outcomes, disease outcomes. So, I mean, I think it can't be overstressed like that they are, they are one and the same and especially what's happening in our, in our childhood. So that's great. Please. Yeah. Go on. And well, and well, and I, yeah, I mean, I just, I would only add that. I mean, I think, you know, you and I both, I think fundamentally agree that like space yeah. shapes behavior and, and space can shape how you feel and, and it can do so in a negative way and it can do so in a positive way. Right. We, at mass, we talk about things, you know, spaces that hurt and spaces that heal. Um, and I, and I just add that as like, as we think going forward, um, you know, I hope, I hope it'll, I hope more of these lessons from, you know, evidence-based design or designing Mm -hmm. for health will continue. It won't just stop at infection control or at designing, you know, for infectious disease or mitigation of that. But that we'll start to look at other ways that designing for health and can can start to come into housing, come into our schools, come into our museum spaces, yeah. come into our restaurants, and really start to create um, you know beautiful, dignified spaces and healthy spaces. Amen to that. Well, that is probably a fabulous way to to wrap this. I <laughs> I'm just like um, loud claps over here. Um, I, Patricia, it is so much fun to talk with you. I feel like I could just talk with you for hours and um, love to hear all the cool stuff that you guys are up to. And I just so appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to, to share your perspective and your story with us. So thank you. No, it's been really, really delightful. Thank you so much for, for including me. Thanks so much for joining us on this episode of Shared Space. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a minute to subscribe wherever you're listening and head on over to Apple to give us a review. It really helps to spread the word and we really appreciate it. I hope that your day is filled with honest emotion, kindness, and connection. Thanks so much and take care.